So again, Matthew chapter 14, verse 1, we read, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. If you're new with us this morning, we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew in order, in, in our hopes, are that we would just gain a deeper understanding of who Jesus truly is and that we would all fall deeper in love with Him as our Lord and Savior. When we started out our study through the Gospel of Matthew a little over a year ago, we noted that Matthew's purpose in writing this Gospel was to... Uh, present Jesus to the Jewish people as the Messiah, as the King of Israel. And the outline goes something like this. In chapters 1 through 4, Matthew reveals the King. In chapters 5 through 7, Matthew records the principles of the kingdom. In chapters um, 8 through 10, Matthew reveals the power of the king. And in chapters 11, 13 through 13, Matthew reveals the rebellion against the king. And now here in chapter 14, Matthew records the retreat of the king as Jesus begins to pull away from the crowds and he begins to focus on pouring into his disciples and preparing them for what lies ahead. At this point in time, Jesus' fame, it's well established and is growing among the common people in Israel. And the size of the crowd that's following Jesus, it's just staggering. And while he's becoming very well known and well received by the common people, and sometimes this, this can be the case, it, it can happen like this, where the rulers of the land, right, the people who are living in the palaces, the people who are in positions of authority, you know, they can be the last to know what's happening among the common people. And I know that's kind of a generalization. You know, it's not true of all politicians, but it's something that frequently happens. Politicians can be completely out of touch with what's going on with the common people that they're governing. And so at this point in time, Jesus has 
popularity has risen to the place where finally it's gotten to the point where there's talk about Jesus in the king's palace, right? In the palace of the king who's ruling over the northern part of Israel, right, called the Galilee. The king over that area was a man named Herod. Now, <clears throat> there are many Herods mentioned in the Bible. And uh, frankly, it can be hard to keep track of all of them. Uh, who's who and the relationship to each one, of, uh, each one of them. And, you know, sometimes, you know, a Bible teacher, a pastor, you know, he'll get up and he'll do a Bible study maybe on the Herods, you know, and give you their relationship one to another, you know, just so you can be clear. But I find that <clears throat> that doesn't always help out. Um, it can be so complicated when you try to unravel that family. You know, what I suggest is you might want to go grab yourself a good Bible commentary and see the flow chart, the way they have uh, that family tree of Herod kind of laid out and get an idea of who's who and they were ruling when. But I'll just try for our purposes this morning. I just want to explain this Herod that's being talked about here is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the Herod that ruled over Israel at the time of Jesus' birth. You'll remember that the Magi came and uh, told Herod the Great, they said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod heard that, you know, he felt threatened that there was a new king of the Jews, a new uh, king that was born into the world. And so you'll recall he had all the male children, two years old and under, in Bethlehem. He had them killed because of that threat that he felt. And when Herod the Great died, what he did was he broke his kingdom up into four parts. That's why this Herod and his brothers, they're called a tetrarch. It's a fourth ruler, right? Herod had several sons, but the region that included the northern area of Israel called the Galilee and some of the other area all around that region, he gave to Herod, this Herod we're talking about. This Herod is called Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is called the king in the Bible and in the annals of history, but he doesn't have complete authority. <clears throat> he was a king in the sense that Rome recognized him as a ruler over this area and allowed him to operate as a king within the empire of Rome. But Rome, Rome was the absolute governing authority. Rome dominated Israel and all the parts uh, of that ancient world during that time. And we read in verse 1, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. When Herod hears of Jesus' teaching, and the spiritual impact he had, 
he immediately thinks of John the Baptist is risen from the dead. When others heard about the miracles that Jesus was doing, you know, they thought he was Elijah. You know, you might recall that Elijah never died. He was taken to heaven in a fiery chariot. So the other people, when they heard about Jesus, they thought that they were seeing the return of Elijah. Others, others thought that Jesus was, you know, that great prophet spoken of by Moses that was going to come into the world, that he was the Messiah. And still others, they said, you know, no, he, he's not the Messiah, but he is a great prophet. They said maybe he's Jeremiah. Maybe he's one of the other prophets of old that has risen from the dead. And these were the thoughts and conclusions that the people were coming to. Herod, however, <coughs> excuse me. Herod, however, he concludes that Jesus is John the Baptist risen from the dead. Now that's kind of a, an odd conclusion that he comes to. And it makes you kind of wonder, you know, is there a reason that he comes to that conclusion? And the answer is yes, there's a reason, right? And in verses 3 through 12 of Matthew chapter 14, the Holy Spirit gives us a little history lesson in order that we might gain some insight as to the reason why Herod came to the conclusion uh, that Jesus was John the Baptist. And in verse 3 it says, For, and that's a reason word, can also be translated because... For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And these verses were introduced to Herodias and the situation that John the Baptist spoke against. And, you know, again, I'll try to fill in some of the history for you. Herod was married to an Arabian princess. He was already married. And he winds up marrying Herodias, who was his brother's wife. Herodias was his brother Philip's wife, right? So Herodias is Herod's sister-in-law, but at the same time, she's also his niece because she's the daughter of one of Herod's half brothers. It's all very complicated. Herod abandons his wife in order to enter into this adulterous, incestuous relationship with Herodias. And they both ultimately divorce their spouses to marry each other. And Herodias, she's very, very happy to marry Herod. And John the Baptist, he's ministering in the area and he stands up and denounces Herod's behavior as sin. And he said it was unlawful. His standard of what was lawful and was not, what was not lawful was the law of Moses. And what Herod was doing with Herodias, it failed to meet the standard of the Old Testament law on two levels. First, it was adultery. He abandoned his wife to marry the wife of another. And secondly, it was incest. Again, she was his niece. Now, when John took a stand against Herod and Herodias, 
who were the rulers of that northern portion of Israel, very, very powerful people at that time. It tells us a lot about the person, John the Baptist. John had already made a name for himself standing before crowds of people by the Jordan River, denouncing sin, denouncing, you know, how low God's people had sunk in the practice of sin, right? And he called uh, the people to repent. He denounced how far that they strayed from God, and he called the people to repent and return to God. And it takes a certain special type of person to stand before people in a public setting, you know, calling crowds to repentance. But I think it's, it's probably the easier thing to do in reality. You know, I think the harder thing to do is to hold on to your message, right, and be just as bold in a private conversation. To be just as bold and unwavering when you're one-on-one with a person or when you're in a small group of people. I think sometimes that's the more difficult thing to do, to deliver the truth of God's Word in a small personal setting. And John, he was faithful in each circumstance. It didn't matter to John if he was called to call crowds of of people to repentance. It didn't matter to him if he had just a single person before him or a small group of people before him, he was going to speak the truth. It didn't matter to him if they were powerful people. And it didn't matter to him if they had no power at all. He was going to faithfully deliver the word of God to whomever God had placed in his path. And it seems today at least to me, it seems today that our culture would have us believe what a person is publicly, maybe as a political figure, right? And Herod, he's a political figure. But it seems that the world would have us believe today what a person is publicly has no bearing on what that person should be in their private life, right? The one has no effect on the other. But John the Baptist, he didn't believe, he didn't believe that at all, and we shouldn't believe that at all either, right? No one is that good at compartmentalizing their life. John spoke candidly to everyone, and he called things out for what they were. And I think that we need to really seek the Lord as believers today, and I mean it. I mean it as as sincerely and soberly as I can mean anything. I think as Christians, as believers today, we need to seek the Lord in this hour and time in our nation, whether or not we've grown too silent in the face of wickedness. Have we grown too accustomed to wickedness and the sin that's occurring in this nation, occurring all around us? I think there's so much sin, so much shameless sin and wickedness all around us in a culture. And it's become aggressive, right? We export as a nation, as a people, we export 
and so much evil to the rest of the world. There will be a reckoning for us as a nation if we don't repent. You know, as I'm reading through the Bible in my personal devotional life, you know, I'm currently in the book of Isaiah. And the other day I read Isaiah 5.20. And Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And you know, as I read that, it just broke my heart. I mean, tell me that's not an accurate description of the condition of our nation, of the time that we live in this country. You know, you see sin and wickedness positioning itself in our country. You know, it's being redefined and it's being legitimized through our judicial system today. Sin and lawlessness is advancing and it seems sometimes like it's, it's just gaining new heights, you know, and it's on a daily basis. You just see it growing before your eyes in our culture. And I think as Christians, when we see sin in our country, we can look at it and think, you know, it's a terrible thing. And our response is we just throw up our hands and we say, but what can I do about it? You know, I'm just one person. What can I do about it? You know, it's like a tidal wave right in front of me, right? We think, you know, it's the way the world is going, you know? It's not my place to speak up. But when you look at John the Baptist's life, right, I wonder what would happen if we followed his example. If each of us as Christians stood up individually in our culture, not waiting for a movement, not waiting for something to happen, but individually, if we would stand up and call out sin for exactly what it is when we encountered it. Whether we encountered sin publicly or in a private conversation, you know, what would happen if we just stood up and said, no, that's lying and it's wrong? You know, if we stood up and said, you know what? No, sex outside of marriage is sin. God has revealed a sexual relationship to be a blessing within the parameters of a marriage relationship. Outside of that relationship, a sexual relationship is sin. What if we stood up and said, no, homosexuality is sin, right? It's not any worse or any less of a sin than lying in adultery, but it's a sin. It's not an alternative lifestyle. Not only is it a sin against God, but you know what? Homosexuality is a sin against God's word. And furthermore, it's a sin against the people that, um, are living that lifestyle. It's a sin against the witness of nature. The human body wasn't designed for that type of activity. What if we were to take a stand and say to somebody, no, that's gossip, right? You have no business telling me what you're telling me right now. I don't want to hear it. 
What if we would ask the Lord as Christians to open our mouth, to boldly stand up in the face of abortion and say, no, abortion, it's a sin. It's not a right. No one has a right to take an innocent, defenseless human life for any reason, much less for the sake of convenience or for selfishness sake. What if we were to stand up and say, no, don't give me that. That's, that's stealing. I don't, I don't want it. You know, we could talk about drug use and drunkenness and swearing and profanity. You know, all these kinds of things. What if the world heard the same message from every single Christian instead of silence? What if we stood up and said, no, I don't see it that way. This is what the Bible has to say. You know, I think that that first has to start in our relationship with each other as Christians. Paul wrote, uh, sorry, Peter wrote 1 Peter 4:17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Right? We need to be willing to lovingly stop even in our relationship with other Christians and say, no, I disagree. This is what the Bible has to say. Right? We should be willing as Christians when someone stops and says, that's not right. We should be willing to receive it if we're, you know, in the wrong. It's so important today. It's what John was willing to do. And it cost John his life to do it. It's a responsibility that you and I have, that we have, being salt and light in this generation. But it has to be done in love and in gentleness. It has to be done in humility. Proverbs 25.15 says, By long forbearance a ruler is persuaded, and a gentle tongue breaks the bone. That proverb gives us a picture of a servant who's standing before a king. And he has no ability to change that king's mind about anything. He has no power to change that king's heart. He has no authority. He, he has not even a hope, right, to change the decision-making process of the king. He stands before that king and says, what can I do? to change this king. And God answers that servant with two things. One, by long perseverance, keep speaking the truth. Keep saying the same thing over and over again. Don't give up speaking the truth. And secondly, do it in gentleness. The truth, when it's spoken in gentleness, the proverb says, is as impossible to ignore as a broken bone is, right? If you stand up and get in my face, if you point your bony finger between my eyes, you start yelling and screaming at me, you know what, I can dismiss you so fast it will make your head spin. You know what, my response is whatever. You're just a crazy person. 
But if you, right, stand in front of me and you're speaking the truth in genuine love for me, right, and you say, Gary, this is this and that's that, you know what, it breaks my heart, it, it, it breaks me. As long as it's being said in love, as long as I know that you think the best of me and you have my best interest at heart, you know, when you're telling me I'm wrong, that kind of gentleness, that kind of love penetrates so much deeper into the heart of a person because it penetrates and then what it does is it leaves an open door for the Holy Spirit to work in that person's heart, right? Instead of slamming the door shut on the Holy Spirit using anger and wrath. Gentleness, humility, and perseverance is so important in speaking the truth in love in order to make a difference in this life. And as we speak the truth in love, it'll make some people feel uncomfortable but it will also make us the salt and light God intends us to be in this culture. God will keep His voice through our lives in this culture. John did exactly that during his window of opportunity in his life and ministry. And do you know, when we do it, it's good for us. It's so very good for us too. Because once you take a biblical stance on some issue in life, what's it going to do? Well, now you're going to have to live up to that biblical stance, you know? It's, it, it's a good influence on you, you know? It's going to cause you not to cut corners, you know, not after what you told them last week, right? We have to live according to the stands we take in life if we're going to maintain our witness. It produces a good and important influence for us in our lives. I wonder, and I, and I genuinely wonder, if we make a commitment to God and His Word, if we make a commitment today as God's people and ask God to loose our mouths to speak His Word in regards to what we see going on around us, if God would give us boldness to open our mouths and stop biting our tongues in the face of wrongdoing. And more importantly, you know, if we would ask the Lord to, to give us love and humility necessary, necessary to speak effectively, to give us, to give me gentleness and love to be able to speak God's Word into the lives of others effectively for His glory. Lord, allow me to, to speak. And Lord, give me Your heart for those people who are on the wrong path, the very wrong path that we were on with God's grace shown into our life. You know, I wonder if we just ask the Lord, to give us such love for people that we just couldn't sit by silently when we hear them talking about such things. 
knowing that what they're doing is so very destructive to them. I believe if we would ask the Lord for that type of boldness and love and gentleness and courage, that the Lord would honor that prayer and He would give us that type of grace. Well, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to notice as John the Baptist confronts Herod and Herodias with their sin, Herod had John arrested. Verse 3, For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, It's not lawful for you to have her. Herod put John in prison primarily because of Herodias. That's the reason that uh, is given to us here in this chapter. The other Gospels tell us that it's Herodias. She was the one who really wanted to see John dead. But she didn't have the authority or the opportunity to do it. Mark 16.9 says, Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. I mean, Herodias, she was a woman scorned and she wanted to see John dead like yesterday. She had no appetite for the things that John had said to them. Now, it would seem, though, that there's this conflict going on within Herod's heart regarding John. Verse 5 of our chapter says, And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitudes because they counted him as a prophet. We read that Herod wanted to silence John probably because of the conviction that arose in his heart as a result of John uh, declaring what he was doing was wrong. The problem was that he was afraid of the multitude. The people that followed John, they counted him as a prophet of God. Now again, the other Gospels tell us that uh, Herod feared John also, knowing him to be a just and holy man. Mark 6.20 says, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things, and he heard him gladly. Herod had a certain respect for John because of the stand that he was willing to take. And as a result, after putting John in prison, he would go down and talk with John from time to time. Herod's that kind of guy that likes to have the religious conversation once in a while. He likes to kick around religious you know, doctrines and topics and ideas. He likes the intellectual stimulation that goes along with those types of conversations, the, the challenges intellectually that, that uh, result from those types of conversations. Here is the kind of guy that, you know, he likes to go to church, maybe even puts a few bucks in the offering plate when it's passed by. He likes to hear the Word of God. He likes, you know, the things that God's people have to say. He just doesn't want to live for God. He just doesn't want to obey God's Word. He's just not willing to give God's Word that place in his life that it deserves. 
So there's this conflict within Herod. He wouldn't mind seeing John silenced, but at the same time, he knows that he, he would be wrong in doing that and silencing him. And it's this nagging tug of war that's going on in his heart. And through all of this, the devil is setting Herod up for the kill. The devil is willing to set up anyone for the kill. He's more than willing to, to take advantage of anyone, willing to take anyone down who's willing to set them up in the way that Herod is doing here. And we read in our chapter, the day came, Herod had a birthday party. He invites all his high-ranking officials, all uh, his friends that are ruling over the area, that are governing authorities over the area that he's overseeing. They're probably all Gentiles. And he throws a feast for them to celebrate his birthday. And in those days, a feast meant food, and it meant a lot, a lot of wine. It meant drunkenness while the wine is flowing. And we read in verse 6, when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. It would seem that Herod, her, uh, sorry, it would seem that Herodias sees her chance here to kill the John, to kill John the Baptist, and she sends her daughter in to dance before Herod and all his men. And we know uh, through history that Herodias' daughter's name is Salome. She's probably somewhere in her mid-teens, maybe 16 or 17. And remember this, she's Herod's niece, the daughter of one of his brothers. And she comes in and dances this very provocative, very suggestive, sexual dance, which gets all the men very aroused and excited. And all the men now are lusting after her. Herodias knows Herod very, very well and thinks that under the influence of all of the wine and be set and being sexually aroused, being sexually stimulated, maybe he will make an offer to Salome that will be just what Herodias needs to get to John. And Herod does it. Verse 7, Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Herod says, What do you want? I'll give you anything you want as payment for what you've done for me, for what you've done for the men at this party. And he promises her whatever you ask. And he made an oath in front of all of these witnesses. Mark's gospel tells us he also swore to her, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. But she didn't know what to ask for. She hadn't been briefed, right, what to ask for if that was about to happen. So what she does is she runs off and she asks her mom what she should ask for. And Herodias knows this is, 
the opportunity she's been waiting for. So Herodias tells Salome, go back in there and ask for the head of John the Baptist. And verse 8, so she having been prompted by her mother said, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. Man, Herodias, she was a hard-hearted lady, wasn't she? I mean, she's a real piece of work. She's something else. When Herodias asked for the head of John the Baptist, she wants a couple of things, right? First, she's asking for physical evidence that John the Baptist is dead. She's saying, I don't want to hear that you had him killed. I don't want someone to tell me they killed him and they buried him someplace. I want to know he's dead. And I want to see the evidence for myself of that fact. I want to see his head on a platter in order to be assured that he is in fact dead. I mean, she's hard-hearted. But the second thing she's, she's doing here is she's asking that it be done quickly in order that Herod doesn't change his mind. Mark 6.26 says, After being prompted by her mother, Salome came and said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. In other words, she says, I want it done now. And in verse 9, Matthew chapter 14, we read, And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it be given to her. Herod doesn't want to kill John, right? The request saddens him. But he made an oath in front of all of these people. And because of his pride, Herod is put in a tough place. Everyone knows it's wrong. And they're all watching, wondering, what's he going to do? And the room is probably just deathly silent now. And all eyes are fixed on Herod. Is he going to do the right thing? Or is his pride going to win out? And in verse 10 we read, so he sent and had John beheaded in prison. Because of his pride, he doesn't want to go back on his word. He doesn't want to lose face in front of all of his guests. So he gives the command to have John executed. In verse 11, And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. And now, sometime later, Herod hears about the deeds. He hears about the teaching of another just and holy man. When the news of Jesus gets to the palace, Herod's mind goes back in an instant to that day it goes back to that feast. And he's reminded of the terrible decision that he made. And it torments him. It tortures him. Right? And that torment is the byproduct of a guilty conscience. The guilt that he continued to feel 
long after the wrong that he knew he had done to John the Baptist. What is a guilty conscience? It's the feeling we have inside when we know we've done wrong or when we've wronged someone else. The Bible teaches that every one of us, even before we became Christians, every single person who's born in the world has a God-given sense of right and wrong. Added to that, we have an intuitive sense of right and wrong and an innate sense that we should never engage in what's wrong. We should never violate that conscience. You know, and when we do, we feel guilty. And when we obey our conscience, we experience what we call a clean conscience or a clear conscience. And it's when we're free from guilt. A conscience is a very, very valuable thing to us because if we heed it, it will always direct us from doing the wrong thing. And it will always direct us towards doing the right thing. What Herod teaches us in this passage is the incredible power of a guilty conscience. And some of us know all about this. As soon as Herod hears about another just and holy man teaching the masses, drawing great crowds, his first thought is of the wrong he had done to John the Baptist. That's how a guilty conscience works. Right? That's how close to the surface a guilty conscience is in life. It will not allow a person to rest. Not for all their power, not for all the money that they may have, not for all the time that may have passed since they did that wrong that they did. Herod can't get free from his past. He's a slave to his past. He's tormented by his past. He's haunted by his past. And he can't go anywhere. He can't do anything. He can't begin any day without realizing that sometime in the course of the day, there may be some sight, some smell, some sound, some event that will occur that will instantly trigger that memory right, of that great wrong that he's done in his life, suddenly transporting him back right into the middle of the scene, right into the middle of that party where that great sin that he had committed, you know, that sin that he had committed in his life against another person. That's the power of a guilty conscience, right? It makes the whole world an enemy out of the fear of something that will trigger or cause our past to surface. Notice the circumstances that led to Herod's disastrous decision. The Bible says there's nothing new under the sun in Ecclesiastes. These are the same circumstances that are in play today, right? The same circumstances leading so many into a guilty conscience today. Look at the party he was at with all the alcohol flowing, 
all the drunkenness and all. How many people today have a guilty conscience over something they did when they were drunk? Something they did when they were high on drugs? Herod was loaded at this party and he makes a stupid offer to Salome to give her whatever she wanted up to half his kingdom. And that's just an idiotic statement of a person who's drunk, right? And you think of how many people today, you know, are regretting the morning after, right? They have the regrets the morning after a drunken party, what they did the night before. Notice that Herod's great sin occurred when he was also under the influence of sexual lust, right? He's completely excited. He's sexually stimulated. How many people today are living a life of guilt and regret because of a decision that they made when they were influenced by lust, influenced by selfish gratification of the flesh? You think of the loss of innocence, you know, sexually transmitted diseases, you know, which are incurable, many of them today. The abortions, a broken marriage vow that resulted in the destruction of a family. And you notice also that Herod's great sin occurred when he was in an evil and ungodly environment. How many people have so much regret in their life because they put themselves in to the wrong place. And all their lives, they're just kicking themselves. If only I would have never gone there. If I'd never accepted that invitation. If I'd never gone to that place. Think about all the clubs in the world. All the bars. All the parties. You know, think about people getting sucked into gangs or a life of crime all because they were someplace they shouldn't have been. I wish I never had gone there. I wish I never had put myself in that type of environment. Also, you want to notice that Herod's great sin occurred when he surrounded himself with ungodly people. Right? He has all these people around him who are not an influence for righteousness in his life. And you know what? We need to be careful. And this needs to be an example for us. We need to be careful who we're associating with on a regular basis. We need to be careful of the friends that we choose. And I tell young people this all the time. You know what? Don't let people choose you as a friend. You choose your friends. You make the choice and you choose those friends wisely. Because 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Or evil company corrupts good morals. Here, Herod surrounded himself with equally ungodly people. You think about how many ungodly decisions are made as a result of ungodly influences. Decisions made so that you can just go along with the crowd. 
So you can just be part of the group, part of the gang. And the regret that is produced, the guilty conscience that comes from those decisions, I wish I never had her or him as a friend in my life. I wish I never had met that person. I so regret the influence that person has brought into my life. And you know what? This is all real. This is as real today as it was 2,000 years ago. These are the things that are playing out today that were playing out, you know, long before Herod's time. Right? These things always lead to regretful decisions. The account of these events here before us in Matthew chapter 14 are a warning for us today against anything we might do to show off for other people or any decision we might make in order to be part of the crowd, trying to impress somebody or to prove our importance to others. In verse 9, Herod knew what the right thing to do was, but his pride kept him from doing the right thing. He can't admit that he's wrong. He's the king. He's the man. He has to let it play out and hope that in time things will die down that people will forget about it. In order to impress everyone who's watching, he's stuck in a wrong decision and he's stuck with a stupid promise. And yes, I said the S word. I said it already once. I'm going to say it again. Why? It's stupid. Giving in to these things, it's just stupid. We must never allow our own pride to keep us from admitting when we're wrong. We can never make a wrong right by being stubborn. Right? That never makes anything better. We'll never right a wrong by trying to wait it out. Right? We have to determine what's right and wrong what we're going to do or not do based on God's word, not based on our pride. Think about how many disastrous decisions and terrible actions come from a pride-filled heart. Everyone knows you're wrong. You're not fooling anyone. Everybody sees what you're doing is wrong, but they won't admit it, right? They won't admit they're wrong because they're too proud to admit it. They're afraid if I admit it, it's going to make me look weak. What will people think of me? People can get so stubborn. And they'll say hurtful things to people, things that they'll regret for the rest of their life. And in our pride, we can force people out of our lives that God never intended to be forced out of our lives. In our pride, we can force her out of our life, force her right out of the marriage, right out of the door, and then slam the door behind her, force her away, never wanting to see her again. 
the best thing that ever happened to them. But in his pride, he pushes her out into the cold. And he gives no thought what it does to the kids. The damage as a result of pride. Priceless relationships flushed down the toilet. No one ever tries to make it right. And every single time we think of that person, we're filled with guilt. The damage that pride creates in our life. Herod is an example of what not to do when you make a bad decision. You know it's a bad decision and everyone else knows it too. They think maybe they'll forget, but people don't forget. And the more prominent a person is, the more powerful a person is, the more public a person is, the more important it is for that person to be humble and to be able to admit when they're wrong, when they've done the wrong thing. Because the impact that our decisions have is so broad, so big, so far-reaching, and so too the healing that can occur in another person when we ask for forgiveness is equally big and broad. You look at Herod and you realize that this kind of thing is played out every day all over the, all over the world. Right? There's nothing new here. It's something that we all face. It's not just Herod. And you don't have to put John the Baptist to death to be tormented by a guilty conscience. You know, a tender conscience can be greatly tormented by one sentence that was said and that was never made right. And knowing there's someone out there living under the weight of that sentence. Well, all of these, all of this raises a couple questions. When, what can a person do with a guilty conscience? You know, is there any hope of being released from a guilty conscience? And the answer is yes. But you can't go back and fix it. No one gets to go back in time to fix their past. Our past is our past, right? That's the reality of things. Dreaming about it and thinking about it continually. Oh, if only I could just do it over. If I had another chance, I would do X, Y, and Z, right? If dreaming could fix our, fix our past, it would be fixed a thousand times over, right? We can't go back and fix our past. We can't go back, but thankfully, God has provided a way that we can be released from the grip of a guilty conscience. And the cure for it is to believe in and trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, right? Inviting Him into your life by coming to the place in your life where you say to God, God, I agree with the assessment you have of me. I'm a sinner. I've been less than perfect. And I believe that my sins have separated me from a relationship with you. I'm 
done trying to be the Lord of my life. I'm done with causing problems for myself and being the cause of problems for others, wounding others around me. I'm done with going my own way in my own wisdom. Lord, I'm willing now to turn from my ways and the path that I'm on and to turn to you. Doing that is called repentance. And when a person says, you know, I've not only turned from my old ways, but I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I honor you by receiving your forgiveness for my sins, by placing my faith in you. Father, I believe you sent Jesus into the world to offer forgiveness for my sins. Right? When a person does that, a miracle takes place. And it happens all the time all around the world also, every single day. And that miracle is God's Spirit enters a person's life and they begin a personal relationship with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And that relationship, wonderfully, is an eternal relationship with God that goes on forever and ever, right? All of it is there to be received as a gift. You can't earn any of this. You can't buy any of this. It's given freely to everyone who's willing to receive it. The Bible says when we do that, when we receive that gift, when we receive Christ as our Savior, God cleanses us from an evil and guilty conscience. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil or guilty conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We also read in Hebrews 9.14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Do you know why our faith in Christ cleanses us from a guilty conscience? Because when we give our lives to Christ, He does what no one else can do. And that is, He gives us a fresh start. He makes us a new creation, right? And He has the right to give us a fresh start because He paid the great price, right? Through His Son in order to do that. The Bible says, therefore, if anyone, anyone at all, it's available to everyone. The Bible says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation, and old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Right? God gives us a chance to start over again. He gives us a blank slate, and the power of the Holy Spirit in in our lives enables us. It enables us to live a different life than what we once lived. He gives us the power to live a different life. Right? A life of obedience to God's Word through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that life will never, that life that we live in obedience to God, enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit, will never bring any shame or guilt 
or guilty conscience into our lives, right? That's what happened to me when I came to know Christ as my Savior. And I can tell you, I was eager to receive a fresh start. You know what? I was eager to receive forgiveness for my sins. I was eager to have my past taken out of the way that I might live a new life for Jesus Christ. Well, someone might ask, what do I do about a guilty conscience I have as a Christian, right? I'm saved. I'm walking with God. But what do I do when, you know, uh, those thoughts, they just kind of spring up on me. You know, my past just jumps out at me and reminds me of the things I've done. You know, something happens and it triggers in my mind the wrong that I've done. And I'm just right back in that situation. And it's terrible and I hate it. And I know I have a fresh start in Christ. But the shame and the guilt that I feel, what, I, what do I do with that? Maybe I'm the only one that experiences such things. I don't know. I don't think so. I think some of you know what I'm talking about. Right? I think it's somewhat common for Christians. But what we do when that happens, what we need to do when that happens is we need to remind ourselves what the Bible has to say about us as Christians. We need to stop and remember if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Right? Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And we need then to thank the Lord for the fresh start that we've received. Right? Thank you, Lord, that my past is done away with. Thank you, Lord, that I don't have to relive the pain and the guilt. Thank you, Lord, that the blood of Jesus cleanses me whiter than snow. Thank you, Lord, that there is therefore now, this moment, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you demonstrated your own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what? My past wasn't a surprise to Jesus Christ when I came to him. Wait a minute. You know, I, I wasn't aware Gary was like that. No. He knew what he was getting into when he offered salvation to each one of us. Ephesians 2, 4, and 6 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love which he had loved us, loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our salvation offered to us as a free gift is so complete, God already sees us seated in the heavenly places. It's a done deal as far as he's concerned. He already sees us beyond this life. He sees us into the life to come. That's how sure our salvation is. Right? That's what the Bible says about our past. 
It has nothing to do at all about how I feel about things. It has nothing to do. It doesn't matter at all what other people think of me. 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments of every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. What these verses mean is that when I'm walking down the street or driving down the road, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a thought pops into my mind condemning me over something in my past, I can do one of two things. I can allow that thought to have free reign in my mind and agree with it. Man, I am such a loser. I can let it beat me up and leave me alongside the road to bleed out. Or I can stop when that thought comes into my mind and say, Lord, I don't want to give place to a thought like this anymore. It's dishonoring to you and to the cross of Jesus. It's dishonoring to the blood that Jesus shed for my sins. Lord, I give you this thought. I'm not going to spend any more time thinking about it. Do with it whatever you see fit. And then go on about your business, right? That's how we take thoughts captive. That's how we handle our past as Christians. Someone might ask, what do we do with the sins we commit after becoming a Christian? Well, again, the Bible tells us that when we do sin, even after becoming a Christian, we're to confess it to God and ask Him for forgiveness. The Bible says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it's also important, if we've sinned against another person, I need to go to that person and ask them for forgiveness, to confess my sin to them without offering excuses for what I've done and ask them to forgive us. That's how we handle sin after we become a Christian. Well, someone might say, I don't feel guilty over the things I've done. That's not a good sign. It's not a good sign at all. You know, if I were to bring out a dead body and just lay it out here in front of us and then take a 200-pound weight and just drop it on his chest, what do you think he would feel? He wouldn't feel anything. It's because he's dead. Right? If you don't feel guilt, you know, it's not a good sign. Right? Herod made a mistake in regards to his guilty conscience that none of us want to make. He ignored it, right? He hardened his heart. And the problem with hardening your heart is every time you harden your heart and then you harden it again and you harden it again and you harden it again, one day your heart will become so hard there's no remedy for it, right? No one in their right mind wants that. The one good thing about a guilty conscience is this. It means there's still life. It means that there's still room for God to work. 
No one has to live a life tormented or tortured by a guilty conscience. No one needs to go through life with a guilty conscience. Jesus Christ and His salvation that He offers is a cure for the guilty conscience. And as Christians, He has set us free from our past. And He's given us new life. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank You for Your Word. And Lord, I pray Your Word would just speak powerfully to our hearts. Lord, maybe people that are dealing with a guilty conscience, you know, wrestling over their past. Lord, I pray that they will look to You and be released. Lord, if they, if they know You, that they would just believe Your Word that, that You've released them, You've forgiven them, that they're a new creation. Lord, if they don't know You, that they would receive You even today and ask You to come into their heart, forgive them of their sins, and make them a new creation and give them the power to live for You. Lord, we give You praise and glory for not only salvation and the forgiveness of the sins, but setting us free from the power of sin and from the guilt of sin. Lord, we give You praise and glory. In Your name we pray. Amen.